Well, it is a real joy to be with you. Um, on behalf of the 140 congregations in the Forest Lakes District, I bring a greeting to you. And I want you to know that uh, God has truly blessed you. God has blessed you with great leadership, humble leadership, <laughs> with uh, wonderful resources at your disposal. But more importantly, he's blessed you in his faithfulness and by his grace to, to just bring life-changing realities in the community here. And, and we thank you not only that um, you know, we're, we're blessed to be here today with you, that I'm blessed to be here today with you, but that you are a blessing uh, to the broader district of churches as uh, you have shared uh, encouragement and investments. Dan's served on the board of our district many times and just wrapping up a, a season of that and just so thankful uh, for the way in which you're a blessing to so many people throughout the state. Now today we're going to be exploring God's word as is often the case uh, during this time in the service. We're going to be in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. So if you want to go ahead and start turning there, if you have your Bible, uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's totally fine. The verses are going to be up here on the screen and you can follow along. Now I want to get you thinking about a few things as we're getting ready to read the text. First, for those of you less familiar with the Bible, maybe you've never read the Bible or this is your first time in church, I want you to know that the Gospel of Matthew it's one of four Gospels inside of this book, the Bible. And uh, the Gospels are the historic accounts of the life of Jesus. Now, one thing that all of us should keep in mind when reading a Gospel like Matthew is that you have much more information about Jesus than the original audience we're reading about. Uh, they had no idea that the cross was coming, that we're about to focus on the cross and the resurrection. They had no idea. Uh, and, and this is not only going to be illustrated in today's text, but of course it's also illustrated with the idea of Palm Sunday. If you recall, you know, Jesus entered the city riding a colt and people were shouting Hosanna and their thought was that he came to rule and reign as king in that moment, that he was ushering in political power. So they too didn't fully understand what was about to happen. And so, with this in mind, we're gonna observe a major turning point today, historic turning point in the disciples' understanding of Jesus' identity. And this is gonna put them on this clear path towards the cross. And so follow along with me now. I'll read from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus answered him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is God's word. 
Now, as we prepare to reflect on these words, I want to give you just a little more information about the setting. You see, before these verses, we learn that Jesus was ministering by the Sea of Galilee in the heart of Jewish territory. And at this time, everywhere he went with his disciples, large crowds would follow. But from the first few verses in today's passage, we see that Jesus took his disciples to the Gentile city of Caesarea Philippi, 25 miles north, to the very outskirts of Jewish territory. Now here his disciples would have been, uh, Jesus and his disciples would have been much less recognized. So he was afforded some time of, of intimacy, some private time with the disciples. But there's a lot more meaning uh, behind the location than simply escaping the large crowds. You see, Caesarea Philippi was known as a center of spiritual activity in the Roman Empire. The city was named after Caesar by the regional leader Herod Philip, hence the word Caesarea Philippi as the location. The previous name of the city was Panias, which was named after the Greek god Pan, who was half human, half goat, known as the god of nature. In honor of Pan, a large white marble temple was built that became the center of pagan worship. And so it's in this context, the uh, capital for pagan spirituality, that Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. And so with that in mind, let's jump back into the text, looking just at verses 13 and 14. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, what's helpful to understand here is that in Jewish culture, it was common for a prophetic mantle to be passed from one prophet to the other. From the prophet Elijah, who was taken up into the heavens, right, the spirit of Elijah was passed on to Elisha. Back in Matthew 14, Herod, who executed John the Baptist, he feared that Jesus was now, was now this resurrection, resurrected version of John the Baptist. Now, to be clear, the Jews did not teach reincarnation. So the idea here was more of a succession of role or responsibility. And so the speculation regarding Jesus was that he was somehow taking on a role of some previous prophet. But the main point is this. Jesus' audience, though they were biblically literate, they were kind of at a loss to who truly Jesus was. So his, his identity was shrouded in a degree of mystery. Now, if you think about it, there's a certain parallel with the original audience and the people of Wisconsin Rapids. I'm sure if you went out and walked around town and just asked people who they think Jesus is, they would probably, you know, give a favorable answer. Uh, if you drill down to the finer points of his identity, however, you would quickly discover, man, there are some really different ways of seeing who Jesus is. Though there's a general religious knowledge for many, the finer points of his ministry and purpose are, are a mystery. And so we definitely have some parallels between the audience of the text and uh, the average person in Wisconsin Rapids. Now back to the text, we see that Jesus now turns his question of identity to the disciples. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, 
Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And now we come to one of the historic moments in the book of Matthew. Peter declares this confession of Jesus. And it's so significant that theologians have called this the Petrine Confession, okay? So it's, it's significant. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now the risk here is to underestimate the significance of this moment because as I said earlier, I mean, many of us, we've read the Gospels and we just might read right past that and not recognize how unbelievable this is. What needs to land on us is this. Nowhere in history before this moment had human lips ever spoken the words Peter spoke. Nowhere had this measure of clarity regarding Jesus' identity been understood. Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now to clarify the significance of this statement, we need to look at his first claim. When uh, Peter was saying he's the Christ, he was recognizing his messianic role, right? That he was the one prophesied for thousands of years by the nation of Israel, the one who would come and rule and reign and usher in a a season of of peace and, and leadership for the Jewish people. And so Peter was exclaiming, hey, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the hope of Israel. But he went even further. He said, You're the son of God. Now, in our understanding of the Jewish worldview of the day, there was no expectation that the Messiah would also be divinity. And so it was a radical concept Peter was proposing when he stated, you are the Christ, the Messiah, but you are also the son of the living God. Now, some of you who are more familiar with your Bible, maybe you've attended a lot of sermons or read the Bible many times, you may remember back in Matthew 3, during the baptism of Jesus, where the voice of God declared, this is my beloved son. But what you need to see is that historically, since that moment of Jesus' baptism, it had never been spoken of. It had never been articulated by the lips of men. It was not fully understood. Now, if you think I'm overstating, which you might be thinking, let's look at Jesus' response in verse 17. He says this, Blessed are you, son uh, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, he's delighted. He's ecstatic. Quite simply, it's because he saw that God the Father had been at work in Peter's heart. Because just a few chapters earlier, in chapter 14, Peter was rebuked by Jesus as one with little faith. But now he stood before Jesus, speaking with bold clarity. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus knew Peter's understanding. It could not have come from himself. This could only have come from the work of God the Father in his heart. Now, I don't know how many of you have had this opportunity to see a heart transformed by God in a way that only he can do it, but there is really nothing sweeter. Recently, one of our Hmong church plants in Madison had the opportunity to see a life transformed and a family transformed by the gospel. 
Now, I know you have a Hmong congregation that meets here in the afternoons, but some of you may not be familiar with, uh, with their origins or, or their history. But the Hmong people, uh, there are over 100,000 here in Wisconsin, over 1,000 in Wood County, and they came to Wisconsin as refugees uh, fleeing political persecution following the Vietnam War. With them came this religion of animism, okay? This pagan religious system where shamans functioned as priests who exercised spirits present in things like animals and the plants and the weather and all around. And this recent convert in this Hmong church, he was actually the son of a shaman. He was raised in this tribal religion and as with many Hmong animists, he was tortured by demonic dreams at night. Terrifying, relentless. And with his shaman parent now passed, he was free to hear in a new way the appeals of Pastor Paul and Shang as they presented the gospel to him. And by, grace, by God's grace, he put his faith in Jesus and his life was transformed and like men, many Hmong animists, he was set free immediately from those demonic dreams. He's now living a life devoted to Jesus Christ as his king. And so in response to stories like that, we can say of that man, just like Jesus said to Peter, you are blessed, child of God, because the Father in heaven is changing you. You did not learn this from any human being. Your life wasn't changed because you simply made a decision. No, God came in and he radically transformed your heart. Similar to that, God had been at work in the heart of Peter. Things that could not be explained any other way were now made clear. And so Jesus was overjoyed. Well, now that Jesus' identity has been revealed in a new way, we're going to make two additional observations historically significant from the text. Observation one, the purpose of Jesus to build the church, and two, the position of Peter and the power of the keys. Okay, so let's look at the purpose of Jesus to build the church. We see this first statement in the second half of verse 18 where Jesus said this, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What Jesus saying is saying, first and foremost here, is that he will build the church. What's interesting here is that this is the first time in Scripture where Jesus uses the word for church. Now that original word in Greek that Jesus actually spoke is ekklesia, which means assembly. So what, what Jesus is saying here is that I'm building my assembly, my people. What we need to understand is that all of Scripture, all of Scripture is pointing to this same outcome. God is preparing a people for himself. And so in many ways, Jesus is restating a purpose that has been clear throughout all of Scripture. We see the fulfillment of this assembly, and, and it's clear in a prophecy that's spoken at the end of Scripture in Revelation 21.3 where it reads, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So Jesus says to his disciples, I'm building this people of God. I'm building this assembly. But Jesus makes another truth claim when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now there's a few ways we can look at this. One is that the gates of hell represent the attack of the enemy Satan against the church. This is certainly consistent with passages like what we read in Ephesians 6. We read that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and spiritual powers of the heavenly realms. In other words, to be a church on mission, you're gonna face opposition. Your enemy, Satan, is against you. Now to give this extra meaning, I wanna remind you that Jesus is delivering this message at Caesarea Philippi, the capital of Gentile pagan spirituality. And in that city, the time that Jesus was teaching, there was a cave. And from that cave flowed a river. And, and the deep spring from which that water flowed in the cave was literally believed to be the passage to Hades, the passage to the afterlife. And so it's against that backdrop where he makes the claim that the entrance to hell, the gates of hell, will not overcome the church. And so his reference also represents this idea of a passage from life into death. And so we see two meanings here for the gates of hell, meaning one, that the church will overcome the power of sin and Satan, and two, that the church will overcome the power of sin and death. Interrupting the passage to hell with the saving grace of God. So to apply this overall promise to you, Crossview Community Church, what Jesus is saying to you is, I'm building the church. Though the power of Satan and, and, and sin, though it be against you, though it may feel both subtle and at times overwhelming, it cannot overcome you if you are in Christ. And so there are two observations I want you to see from the text. The first observation is again, Jesus is building the church. So you don't build the church. Your pastors, past, present, and future, they don't build the church. The quality of your programs and the amazing music and the beautiful facility, I hate to tell you this, I hate to burst the bubble, it doesn't build the church. Jesus builds the church. No matter how strong your systems are nice, your buildings are great, your preaching, he is the one who gets the credit for anything good that happens in this place. The second observation we can make is this. God is here at work in you as a community to turn back the work of sin and Satan in your church and in your community. So we can safely conclude the fact that you're a church means that you're engaged in a spiritual battle. And so you can't get surprised when hardship comes. You can't get surprised when you feel opposition. Why? Because Jesus is teaching us here that the gates of hell will be against us. 
So in the brokenness of this world, in the darkness of many days, you must remember that no matter the opposition you feel, no matter the hardships you face, no matter the coming and going of leaders, no matter pandemics or political controversy, at the end of the day, you can rest assured that the church of God will overcome. So take heart this morning, knowing that Jesus will do it, and he's going to do it through the church. So we've seen the purpose of Jesus to build the church and the power of Satan and sin that it cannot overcome it. So now let's take a look at the position of Peter and the power of the keys. Look with me at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's worth noting that Peter, who was known as Simon up to this point, was now given a new name by Jesus, Petros, which means Peter. And what was the position of Peter? It was that he would be a rock upon which the true church is built. And you'll hear a lot of different interpretations for this, but I think with the plain reading of Scripture, we see that there is some truth to that reality. Now, there are some faith traditions who see these words that Peter is given some kind of enduring position of authority. In these traditions, they call Peter the father of the church, a man with great authority, enduring leadership, the pillar upon which the church is built. But to somehow enshrine Peter in that way doesn't really make sense with what we see of Peter throughout the rest of Scripture. You see, just a few uh, verses later, Jesus rebukes Peter, calling him, you know, a devil, saying, get behind me, Satan. Before Jesus is crucified, we see Peter deny him three times. In the early church, Paul rebukes Peter for allowing legalism to seep into the church. From Acts 12 forward, which tells the history of the early church, Peter fades into obscurity. What we know historically is that James, not Peter, becomes the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem. So there's no evidence here that Jesus was giving Peter an enduring position of authority as the father of the church. So what could he be saying when he renamed Peter from Simon and said, you're the rock upon which the church will be built? Well, to fully understand the significance, we need to also see what Jesus said in verse 19. So let's look at that. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus infers that Peter is a rock upon which he will build the church, and he he infers that he is going to be given the keys, right? The, The power to bind and loose. What in the world could he be referring to? Well, I think, again, just looking at Scripture and reading it through and through, you see something really significant happen in Peter's ministry not long after what happened here. And this is in Acts 2. I'm just going to summarize what happens. You don't need to turn there. As you see in Acts, it's the, again, it's the early history of the church. And we see that Peter has a unique privilege. He preaches the first sermon ever given. This follows the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the Jews gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. After this miracle occurs, we see in verses 14 through 41, Peter delivers this beautiful sermon 
traces the story of the gospel through the Old Testament to the person and work of Jesus. And in verse 38 of Acts 2, we read this appeal to the large crowd. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And after sharing the gospel of Jesus, what we learn in verse 41 is really cool. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I don't know about you, but outside of the resurrection of Jesus, this is one of those moments in history that I just love to see it. I'd love to be a witness to what, have ha- what happened that day. The Holy Spirit was poured out. Peter preaches the gospel. The church is born. It grows in 3,000. How awesome. So I believe this event at Pentecost hits hints towards an answer to how it is that P- Peter wields the power of the keys. You see, Peter was the rock because he was the one to preach the first sermon that would lead to the establishing of the first church. This event also illustrates Peter using the power of the keys as he preached the gospel to the people. You see, that, that gospel message, just so you know, it's what unlocks the door of the human heart, overcoming the power of sin, releasing us to new life, in Jesus. So when Jesus commissioned Peter in this way, I believe he was pointing to this role being used of God to preach the gospel and establish the church in Jerusalem. And once we understand this, we can see how everyone who claims to be a Christian, so if you're a Christian this morning, there's something true to it for you, and that is that you also have the power of the keys of the gospel. Romans 1.6 says it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And you are now bearers of that message. Now, as we land the plane on this message, I'm going to wrap up here. I want to get practical, recognizing that there are three kinds of people in this room. Maybe not exclusively, but I think this will cover many of you. The first is those who've never put their faith in Christ. The second those who are discouraged in faith because of their perceived lack of fruitfulness or usefulness in the kingdom of God. And the third audience, those who are proud, yet to recognize their powerlessness. First, to those without faith, I want to remind you of Peter's confession. In verse 16, he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. With these words, he was putting his faith in God as Savior recognizing he alone has the power to save. A power which was on full display when, as you're going to be celebrating this upcoming week, when Jesus went to the cross, dying the death we deserve for our sin, in order to rise from the dead, crushing once and all the power of sin and Satan. If you're yet to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, just want to encourage you that today you can do so. You can invite the forgiveness of sin that he alone extends and be given the gift of new life and new faith in him. Now the second kind of person here is those who are discouraged. 
over your perceived lack of fruit in your life. I want you to reflect upon what we learned about Peter today. He was a man of great calling, and yet he was an also a man who often lacked faith, who denied Christ, who faded into historic obscurity. Now, why should this be encouraging to us? Well, I think it's because it illustrates how God loves to use weak and broken people to build his church. While I'm not denying Peter had a unique role, I think we can all identify with the idea that he was a living illustration of how God loves to use weak people for his purposes. And this is beautifully spoken, by the way, by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where he wrote, but he said to me, listen, church, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, it's made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. So take heart this morning. This fallen and broken world is becoming Christ's world. It's the theater of his redemption, the place of his mission, over which he has total authority for the accomplishing of his saving work. And God loves to use weak and frail people to shame the strong and powerful. So take heart if you're discouraged today. Rest in the Father this morning, knowing that if you feel weak and inadequate, you're exactly where you need to be. In order to most glorify God, as he works through you in building his church. And finally, I want to speak to the proud who are trying to find their value in their own performance. I want to tell you about a little story about a great preacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was living in Wales. He tells the story of a time when he was gathering with a group of older ministers who were discussing a young minister who had come into the community, and he had remarkable preaching gifts. This man was becoming famous among the people, and there was real hope that God would use this amazingly gifted young man to renew and build up his church. And the ministers, they were all hopeful until one of them spoke up saying these words. Well, all well and good, but you know, I don't think he's been humbled yet. And following this statement, Jones said, the other ministers looked very grim. It was in that moment that something landed on Jones that would change his life and ministry from that day forward. He realized in that moment that unless something comes into your life to break you of your self-righteousness and pride, you may say you believe the gospel, but the penny hasn't dropped in your life. You aren't yet a sign of the gospel in yourself. You don't have the truth of Peter alive within you. You aren't a strength out of weakness person. God may need to bring you low before he can truly use you to build the church. 
Let's pray. Father, I just want to lift up now the three audiences of which I spoke. Father, I want to pray first for those who are far from you. Man, this could be a terrifying moment, and I just want to recognize that. But Father, I pray that those who are sitting there saying, can I really make this step? I have so much to lose. I pray today you would show them, yes, but you have everything to gain. And so, Father, I just pray that there would be some today who would take that step of faith, trusting you in the words of Peter, saying, you are the son of the living God, and I trust you. For the next audience, those who are discouraged today, Father, the lie of the enemy would say you're worthless. Perhaps they grew up with a father or a parent or some other figure who said you're never going to amount to anything. Father, I just pray that this message today would rebuke that lie. And that in those feelings of inadequacy and weakness, there can arise a beautiful flower of grace and redemption and hope and meaning and purpose. And that you love to work through people such as this. May they be encouraged. And finally, Father, for the proud, for those who, who just think, all I have to do is pull myself up by the bootstraps and work a little harder. Father, remind us today that it's you who build the church and that you will humble us out of your love for us to teach us that you alone deserve the glory. And so, God, I pray that you'd bring a humbling word that might be the catalyst through which True effectiveness and purpose will flow, not because of our performance, but because of the performance of Jesus in and through us. We pray this in your name. Amen.